Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. This episode is a little bit about the island and a lot about beach music. Let's head to the surf as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Today I have a special guest, my friend and fellow podcaster, Brian Eichenberger. Brian and Murdoch host a podcast called Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. If you like obscure rock and roll stories that you probably don't know about, it is definitely worth a listen. There are currently 43 episodes available, so plenty to binge on. Brian has also been a visitor to Hilton Head and, like many, fell in love with the island. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey man, thanks for having me. If there's two things I love, it's vacation and rock and roll, and we're combining them, so I'm I'm totally in. Share with us the story behind rock and roll bedtime stories and how that got started. Sure. So Murdoch and I started working together in 2010, 2011, and we were working in radio and marketing and promotions, and both had a radio background on the air, and started realizing that there were there was this new thing called podcasting that was relatively new at the time, and that we had a leg up on everyone because there were these radio studios that were empty all the time because little spoiler alert for the last 20 years or so most of the time when you hear somebody on commercial radio they're not actually uh, there a lot of times it's pre-recorded so there's a state-of-the-art equipment we're like we should start one of those podcast things and we ended up doing that uh, long story short for for about five and a half years and then we took a break and in 2019 got back together and started working on some stuff and this came out of a uh, rock and roll bedtime stories came out of an idea that I actually had I wasn't with Murdoch at the time that I, I had this idea but I was road tripping to see a rock show in Indianapolis with some buddies of mine in, in January of I guess it was 2019 and we were listening to old 80 songs on the way up there and I started finding myself telling stories about every artist that would come on right oh well did you know that you know like NXS came on and I was like did you know Michael Hutchins like there's actually this whole thing about him and Bob Geldof and everyone in the van is like wait what and then I'm finding myself getting on Wikipedia going am I right about that I don't re-. like I remember there's something about Michael Hutchins and that you know his death was strange and that, and and I started to realize that there's a lot of those. When you're talking rock and roll and you're a music head with other people, there's all these things about like, you know, Van Halen and the brown M&Ms uh, or, you know, Keith Moon wrecking a hotel room or whatever. And you kind of know the story, but you don't really know the story. So Murdoch and I were working on another podcasting project, but I said, I think what we should do is is simultaneously work on this project where we just tell each other these stories. And like we, we pick them out, we take Van Halen in the dressing room and we do the research and we come back and go, here's actually what that, you know, this did happen or didn't happen or here's how it came about. So we started doing it and immediately started getting some traction. People were, were reaching out to us and it was, it's just one of those things where everybody does this with their buddies and we were doing it anyway. I was in cars doing it with people and I thought we might as well record this and find the, the kindred spirits who think about rock this way and love the stories behind it because both of us come from a storytelling and a marketing background and we love stories. We call ourselves the story guys. We do marketing and, and other sorts of um, kind of consulting on the side as well. And so this just became a, a big part of that and we have a lot of fun doing it every week. We'll get back to music here in a second, but you've been to Hilton Head. And, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I've lost count, but a lot. Not as much as you, but a lot. Yeah. As a visitor of the island, what were your initial thoughts when you first discovered the island and got there? I, I remember vividly, the I had gone to places like Panama City Beach or whatever before, but I, you know, I remember rolling in there and being like, this is so different because there's trees everywhere. And um, I, I always talk about this when people ask me about Hilton Head, just about the beauty and about how there was so much 
specific and very intentional planning that went into keeping that island to, uh, the, as beautiful and um, gorgeous as it is. And I and how much I appreciate that as I think about probably the 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 things that have had to go into that the conversation and the intentionality and and maybe even the the arguments and the fights of like no let's keep this island beautiful and let's keep the roadways wide and let's keep the tree lines and all that sort of stuff and it's just it really does feel like like a little bit like how i've always envisioned paradise did you stay in the same place every time you've gone down or have you bounced around a little we bit? We bounced around a little bit for the, for years we had an opportunity to uh, stay at the uh, Marriott Barony beach club. Um, that's uh plantation. What's it? I'm, I'm right up near Port Royal. Yes. Right now. Right, right there at Port Royal. But the last couple times we've gone, we've bounced to the other side, which was really, really fun because that was, you know, sea pines was an area that I hadn't been in, even though I'd been there five, six, seven times before that. So it was just even more to discover. And we had an absolute blast on that side of the Island as well. We have an episode that hopefully going to be interviewing a gentleman. He's going to be telling us the story of the famous photograph of Charles Frazier and the alligator. Oh. And this is stuff that I had never heard about. So people that we've talked to over the last couple of months and just the stories that have come out about how things actually happened and, yeah. and the things that Frazier did to actually make sea pines and the island what it is. Was there anything that you've done on the island, any kind of uh, very memorable experience or Every time you go there, do you just check out and lay on the beach? Bicycles. Bicycles have become a big part of my life in the last couple of years, even here um, in, in my regular life since the pandemic happened. And I was looking for ways ways to exercise besides just running myself ragged, literally uh, being a runner for a long time, but getting on a bicycle and seeing parts of town and, and going down dead ends and that sort of stuff. But that uh, some of that was re-inspired by, you know, I mean, you're a kid, you're on a bike a lot. Then you become an adult, and unless you make an intentional part of a workout or something, maybe you're not on a bike a lot. And one thing that's great about Hilton Head is you get down there and you're like, oh, yeah, riding bikes is kind of fun. And uh, and I do remember a very specific memory of of my daughter, who's now a teenager, when she was, oh, man, I got to say she was five or six. We went down there and, and got a, a tandem bike together, and I got lost at about... 8.30 as the sun was setting and uh, everyone that we were vacationing with and my wife were very concerned and we rolled in um, right as everything was getting a little too dark to see back into the Barony Beach Club just in the nick of time but you know she was too young to know anything was wrong because dad was in control and we got to see a lot of the island right at sunset and it was uh, something I'll always a treasure. Now the rest of this episode is just going to be two guys geeking out about music and what we <laughs> love to listen to while we're laying on the beach. When Brian and I started talking about doing this episode, I said, you know, I'm going to put together a list of songs that I just love to listen while I'm on the beach. And it quickly evolved into my favorite songs of the eighties uh, because that was my generation. And, and one of the years that really stands out to me was 1985 when tears for fears released songs from the big chair. Oh yeah. And it really came out in the, 84 and and yep. the beginning of 85 and i just remember sitting on the beach and by the pool and just wearing out shout and everybody wants to rule the world and pretty much the entire album yeah i mean tears for fears right there, there's a band that put a lot into the world in a short amount of time and continues to give back and the covers of those songs one of my favorite things to do is when there's songs like that that i really love one of one of mine from that period is the talking heads this must be the place and 
I will routinely go on to a streaming service like Spotify and just put this must be the place in instead of talking heads and look at all the covers and then just like listen to hours of people covering the song and see who who takes the most creative turn with it and uh, who, who kind of reinterprets it in a way that I've never heard before. And I, I always say that a good song has good bones, meaning that songs that are really, really strong, like everybody wants to rule the world, it doesn't matter what kind of format or genre they're done in. They typically hold up because they're they're just so well written down to the bones like a house with a really good foundation so yeah man i and those songs hold up and the 80s the 80s sound you know that that kind of keyboard sound with like it never really goes away like people talk about a revival but it's like never really left it's always been here in different uh, ways with bands you know throughout the 90s and then over the last 20 years and so it's great sometimes to go back and just put on those those particular tears for fears tunes and go like, yeah, man, this is, this is a feeling captured. So as I put this list together, as I mentioned, it quickly moved into strictly 1980s type music. And I was listening to Richard blade on Sirius XM. Oh yeah. He's got first wave channel there and he does a show and he played a song that I had not heard in forever. I totally even forgot about this song. It was called echo beach by Martha and the Muffins. And I cranked that sucker up and rolled the windows down. It was cold out and it was just loud as could be. And I'm sure the people at the stoplights are like, what is with this guy? And, and you know what's great about that song? Canadian artist, right? And and so a lot of people right now are gonna have to are gonna have to look up that song because it was not a huge US hit. It was a huge song in Canada. And here's the interesting thing that I, I told you we were in radio. Or I was in radio, Murdoch and I both were, but uh, I was in radio and I spent a lot of time in this kind of format, right, of um, working with 80s records and and playing the library hits, the things people haven't heard in a long time. And they go, oh my gosh. But there's something about Canadian radio that a lot of people don't know. Um, so you didn't know you were going to get an education about Canada on a show about the beach and Hilton Head, but here we go. So this is totally real. There is a thing called the Canadian cultural policy. Do you know about this? I do not. Okay. Never heard of it. So- the population of Canada is only like, uh, even though it's huge geographically, it's only like a tenth of the size of the U.S. So they have this problem where where th- if people are going to have an outsized reach as an artist, they're going to go south to the U.S. So they want to keep Canadian artists in Canada claiming Canada as much as possible. So the government actually approached this as a problem. And they said, how do we fix that? What is the solution to keep people loyal to this country instead of just going for a larger audience? And for instance, like if a local Canadian label and management firm wants to offer a $3 million signing deal to an artist, in most cases, they just have to like go to private and public subsidies because they don't have that kind of money because the Canadian market alone can't support it. So Canadian cultural policies support music in in two ways. First, they set a 35% quota for all commercial radio stations. So if you're a commercial radio station inside Canada, 35% of your playlist has to be Canadian artists. So that's why there are a lot of groups like Martha and the Muffins who have a big hit or several big hits or, or some presence in Canada who you might not know about at all in the United States. It's because they are they're forced, they're literally forced onto the airwaves in Canada. So you get more of it. So there were people throughout my radio career, there were people like Fifi Dobson. That the name doesn't mean anything to you, but she had some pop hits. She had almost crossed over into the US, but she had pop hits in Canada. There's bands that had some success, like Our Lady Peace, one of my favorite bands of all time. They're a Canadian, they're huge in Canada. They sell out giant stadiums in Canada and they here they would, they might play rock clubs of two, 3,000 people, right? So, I mean, they opened for Three Doors Down, I remember like 15 years ago. They, they were, they were coming in as an opening act where in Canada they would be a headliner and that bill would 
would be flipped. And it's because of that. Now, here's the other thing. And I know this, I, I, I had first caught wind of this from, I have a brother who was in touring bands for years and he, he had gotten on some dates with a Canadian band and the Canadian band told them, oh yeah, we we're waiting for our government check. And he was like, oh, you guys are like on welfare? He's like, no, 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 no. We get a stipend from the government because we're a touring Canadian artist. And so they actually do this thing where they subsidize new art. So if you're a if you're a band going out on the road, you can apply to basically get a grant to to take care of some of your needs so that you can continue to perpetuate music and culture in in Canada slash from Canada. So very, very cool. So anyway, that explains why you have if you like think about some of the people that are Canadian that are at the top of the charts, the weekend, Drake, Alicia Cara, Sean Mendez, Justin Bieber, all Canadian. And that's part of the reason is the government has invested in Canadian music. And that's part of the reason Martha and the Muffins exist still. And, and you hear them with Richard Blade, right? Which is silly. But I, I say all that because I think it's really, really interesting. But they're, and they had more Canadian success in the songs that be besides Echo Beach. But they actually made a huge contribution to pop music across the world, which I don't know if you know about this or not. And it's not the song. So the song came out in 80. In 81, their bassist left the band. And they replaced that bassist with a woman named Jocelyn Len- Lenoir. You recognize that last name? Do you play hockey? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> she is the sister-in-law, uh, or I'm sorry, the sister of then an unknown guy named Daniel Lenoir. And Jocelyn introduces the band to her brother, and he's trying to make his way as a record producer in the early 80s. And they're like, you should pr- produce our next LP. But in order to utilize his services, they had to agree to, because Virgin, they had to deal with Virgin Records. They had to agree to a Virgin Records demand that uh, if they were going to work with an unknown producer, they would also have to work with a lower recording budget. So they make this album. It's not really successful overall. They're dropped from Virgin. But... The side effect is it gives Daniel the ends to the music industry that he needs. Daniel Lanois will go on to record and produce albums for Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Peter Gabriel, Emmy Lou Harris, Willie Nelson, and he collaborates with Brian Eno to produce The Joshua Tree and Octung Baby for U2. Oh, now we're talking. <laughs> and so if not, it's arguable that none of that would have happened unless his sister had joined Martha and the Muffins in 1982 and introduced him to that band. Martha and the Muffins started Daniel Lanois' producing career. This is why I love talking to Brian, because he is an absolute <laughs> wealth of knowledge of things that like people would have no idea uh, how to even start researching. Fine. You should see his bookshelf. His bookshelf is just uh, loaded yes, it is. with music and rock and roll books, and I'm not sure I've ever met anybody that is better at researching music and music history and a lot of these really obscure type things that you know stories that you've never heard of one of the other songs that made my list and if this song does not make you want to stand up and dance on the beach there is absolutely something wrong with you it's actually my oldest daughter's theme song it's a song that we have connected with her since the day that she was born because she just loved to bounce we called her Tigger. Her real name is Anna, but Katrina and the Waves and Walking on Sunshine. Oh, man. Just the absolute epitome classic beach song it's it's the ultimate like if i had to pick one close my eyes pick one song that you associate with with the beach i would say katrina and the waves walking on sunshine fun fact about katrina and the waves walking on sunshine written as a ballad imagine that what did that sound like i I have no idea and i don't know that a recording exists but originally originally written as a ballad uh but 
there's another really interesting rock lineage thing here, okay? So do you know who Katrina and the Waves, like who was in Katrina and the Waves? I do not. Okay, so so Robin Hitchcock started this band in the 70s. They really did a lot in terms of punk and new wave and like kind of really, uh, one of these bands that you talk to a punk rock band in the 80s, even in the 90s, people will say, oh my God, I was so influenced by Robin Hitchcock, right? But it's not not everybody. Robin Hitchcock didn't have huge radio hits or whatever, and it was always kind of weird and eclectic. But he had this band called the Soft Boys, and the guitar player in the so- or the bass player, bass player in the or guitar player in the Soft Boys was this guy named Kim Rue. And the the Soft Boys breakup, and Kim Rue had played music before he joined the Soft Boys with another guy. And so when the Soft Boys break up, he calls his buddy and he says, "What are you up to?" And he says, "Oh, I've, I'm in this cover band with this woman named Katrina, and we're running. They had a different name. They were running around basically just doing covers and playing bars. Why don't you come play with us?" And he, you know, he was in the Soft Boys, which you know was this kind of antithetical to cover band band, right? And but he's like, oh, "Okay, I'll come and play with friends." And so they start playing together, and he starts writing music. They end up becoming Katrina and the waves. And this song is an absolute music business lesson. So we've already learned about Canada and the music business. Now I'm going to teach you something else about the music business. So biz one Oh one, typically if you write a song, the rights and the royalties to a song go to the songwriter. So Jay, if you write it, you can keep that money. When Kim Rue, having no idea what this song would be like, licensed this song. He actually licensed it to the band. So the original members of that band, Alex Cooper, Vince De La Cruz, Kim Rue, and Katrina Leskinich, split the royalties on Walking on Sunshine to this day. Now, in most cases, that might amount to very little or nothing, right? This is one of the most licensed songs ever. This song, from 2000 to 2010 alone, made a million dollars a year in licensing fees. So this guy, Alex Cooper, who you've never heard of, who was in Katrina and the Waves, and people would probably laugh, makes a lot of money. Split, I mean, what is that, five people? So split if I, you know, $200,000 a year because of something that he was a part of in the 80s that Kim Rue wrote, which is absolutely amazing. Now, And that's just a 10-year span. That's just a 10-year span. Now, the song came out in 85. This is another, this is just a weird cultural side note. And... Exactly 20 years later, in 2005, there is a storm that ravages lower part of the U.S. called Hurricane Katrina. And Keith Oberman on MSNBC dubs his coverage of the storm Katrina in the Waves. So whenever he would talk about Hurricane Katrina, they would do like a cheesy news segment, Katrina in the Waves. Um, and then you know, across the country, people were using this as a pun to talk about. So there's this weird thing where like you can go and find this interview with Katrina herself uh, with the New York Times where she talks about what it was like to wake up and see all these headlines using the name of the band to talk about this horrible historical catastrophe. But uh, it doesn't seem to have slowed down the revenue from that song. So yeah, that song is so fascinating because it's a great example of, you know, sometimes people deride the idea of a one-hit wonder, but it's like, what are you really in the business for? If you can, if you could work for a couple of days in 1982 and make a million dollars a year for the rest of your life, I think we'd all take that deal. And I'm sure that news coverage, even though they were connecting a happy, fun 80s band to this horrible event spurred a lot of interest into 
who's Katrina and the waves? There's all sorts of stories like that, right? Where the side effect of in the reemergence of something because of, I mean, a great example of this, and this is a rabbit trail we don't, we don't need to go down, but like, you know, Journey is a band that had basically totally out kind of just went into obscurity. And then the Sopranos used Don't Stop Believing in their finale. And that band, like, become one of the biggest bands in the world again without the singer that made them famous and the singer that defined their sound they they were able to go on and have a whole second career so i mean it, it's crazy how, how those sorts of things can play into a band's career reemergence i really don't want to go down that rabbit hole but the documentary about <laughs> them finding a new lead singer for journey yeah is maybe one of the best things i've ever watched it is just a fascinating story about using the internet and technology to solve a problem and bring that rock band's career totally back to life. And the guy's just amazing. The the convergence of technology and, and commerce and music in, in these sorts of ways. I mean, there's a lot of those stories. Boston did the same thing. They found a guy who was literally, I mean, the tagline is, you know, guy goes from working from home for Home Depot to to fronting Boston, uh, which which is a true story. And, you know, it, it, there was a period in between there before YouTube was ubiquitous that people were launching these sorts of things on reality shows. Right. And so you have Adam Lambert fronting Queen and you have uh, the guy that they got to front in excess from an from an in excess themed reality show on television so the whole historical trajectory of where mass media interplays here and and reinvents things for people is it's fascinating as i was compiling this list i was hitting all sorts of different groups big audio dynamite the fix simple minds icicle works david bowie pet shop boys when i did a quick google search i was like you know i can't remember all the names of songs actually had summer in them from the 80s and 90s one of them that popped up was suddenly last summer by the motels and oh, immediately yeah. i went to youtube i was like man i love that song Great it's song. just such a fantastic kind of summer love song sure one of the other ones that popped up was cruel summer by banana rama and i yeah. remember being in college when that came out and i was like that is just a hopping song it's another one that just makes you want to dance this is another great song that came out in one year and didn't become a hit for a while so it came out in 83 uh and it doesn't become a hit for almost a full year do you know what made it a a, a, a real international hit it was a hit in the uk kind of but it became a hit in the u.s it became a hit in south africa do you do you know what it was movie yeah do you know what movie think about no. 84 84 daniel son i would have been Oh, wax on. Really? Wax Karate off. Kid? Karate Kid. Man, yeah. I thought that came out when I was in college, man. I was still in high school. Yeah. So out. so that movie comes out and Banana Rama won't wouldn't let it be on the soundtrack. So it's in the movie, but it's not if you bought the soundtrack in the store, it wasn't it wasn't on the soundtrack, but it was it became a massive hit because that movie reintroduced it to the audience. Is there a reason they wouldn't allowed to be on the soundtrack and it, that I, seems like it's not a wise I, it, I, decision i, I don't make. know especially yeah you look back now and you're like what was the what drove that decision but i you know everybody has reasons for that typically you have somebody in your camp that says no you know somebody else will get all the credit or all the royalties or whatever but or there's some sort of agreement on paper that doesn't make it good for the band and you know sometimes it's a wise move and sometimes it's not i mean but it didn't hurt that song in terms of becoming a massive ubiquitous hit bigger than the movie and maybe that's why they did it i mean because you don't you, i don't think typically people hear that movie and they think of karate kid right i mean you didn't but yeah but the but the movie did definitely help with success so that's kind of the best case scenario for that you know 
know. Um, but here's a, a fun story. It's, it actually comes from the video shoot. So they're a girl group, right? And they shoot this video, and because they really want it to look cruel, uh, they, they make sure it's really hot in New York when they shoot this. And it's kind of got this weird take on the Dukes of Hazzard. And it, it's, I, don't, I don't know if you remember what it, what it is. They're like riding around and they're, I mean, that's very sweaty and weird. Um, but it sounds it, like an AZ's video. Yeah. If, if you watch the video though, there's scenes where they're looking like they're, they're just exhausted. And then there's scenes where they're like super energetic. And so the story is that they had set up a headquarters for like where they were filming from and they put all their equipment at this tavern that was like under the Brooklyn Bridge and they came back midday for lunch and they're complaining about how hot it is and how worn out they are and there's all these guys in from the docks who were coming in to, to grab lunch they named Tommy uh, yeah and and one of them says oh you know you, you guys worn out you're a little tired you need a little energy boost I, I can help you and so they offer them a, a recreational um, stimulant, let's say, that's white and powdery. And uh, so they have said in interviews since then that they then went out and shot the second half of the video after having done that. And so that's why half of the video, they're super high energy, and half of the video, they are not. So there's a little, that's a fun note about Bananarama. There's one song that I particularly remember being very big when I was in, in college. It actually came out when I was in high school also, and I think it slowly progressed to, to being a huge hit. Sunglasses at Night. Oh, yeah. Hart. Oh, man. So another Canadian guy, right? Also, do you know about his association with Clapton? I do not. So this is fun, right? People think Corey Hart, they think sunglasses at night, they write him off as this term that I hate, the, the quote unquote one hit wonder. But he's he is huge in Canada. He's in Canada's Music Hall of Fame. He's on Canada's Walk of Fame. Uh, he became really, really big. He actually won, a, he was nominated, he didn't win, but he was nominated for a Grammy Award in 84 for Best New Artist on the strength of this record. Now on the end of that record that Sunglasses at Night is on, there is a song called uh, Jenny Faye. And John Astley produced that record, and he's in the studio, and he's like, I think, you know what would sound good on this song? Clapton. And everyone just kind of laughs, I'm sure. But he, he cold calls Clapton and says, hey, I got this song. Uh, would love for you to be on it. And, and Clapton calls back and says, I love it. Let me do it. And so Clapton's actually featured on that last track of uh, First Defense, which is the, the record that kind of births Corey Hart's career. But another fun fact about Corey Hart, briefly considered, along with a lot of people, there's a lot of lore around this movie, but briefly considered for the role of Marty McFly. Really? Yeah. So apparently Steven Spielberg sent Hart a copy of the script with an invitation to do a screen test and Hart didn't do it. He said, I'm not even going to, nah, I'm going to focus on music. So think about how different that would be. But another Canadian, Michael J. Fox ends up taking the role. Canadians are, are playing a huge part on this, this beach East coast American podcast. The great white North is contributing <laughs> <laughs> quite a bit to this. I want to touch a little bit on Brian's podcast rock and roll bedtime stories because there is actually an episode in there and we're talking about these obscure things. One of the first episodes that you put out, uh, it might've been three or four was about Stevie Nicks and Prince oh, yeah. and the song stand back yeah, and how that actually was stolen. She stole that song from Prince. And when you listen to the two of them, 
separately, you, you make no connection at all. I actually, you start talking about that in that episode. I was like, there's no connection there at all. It's like, one's really fast. The other is not anywhere close to that. And then you put them together and you're like, oh, holy cow. And the story behind that is just absolutely amazing. Do you want to share a little bit without giving too much of it away? Yeah, I mean, basically, Stevie Nicks heard a little, uh, it's a little red Corvette. She hears Little Red Corvette and uh, really likes it and kind of creates stand back around it and then realizes what she's done and calls Prince and says, hey, uh, I think I've ripped you off. And, you know, they were friendly about it. And he said, go forth. Uh, We actually did another episode uh, recently about this happening another time where there isn't anything on record for. Uh, around a conversation or a lawsuit or anything, but if you basically take Susudio uh, by Phil Collins and you play it next to 1999, you will be shocked at how similar those two songs are. And it's another thing that for some reason most people don't make that connection in their brains, but what we played on that episode, uh, several mashups of it, which you can find on YouTube, where people have taken these two songs and put them together and you all of a sudden will say, wow, that is pretty much the exact same song that happens all the time i mean there's only so many you know things rattling around each of our brains and in our our influences and spheres of influences really overlap but it's a really interesting thing to see play out and what's nuts is he's not listed on the song but he actually played on it yeah yeah so it's uh you know those are the sorts of stories we're always after right and we have um speaking of beach music we have an episode that we just dropped where we had the opportunity to talk to joel selvin and joel selvin is a guy who wrote for the san francisco chronicle for uh 30 plus years about rock and roll and he he explains in the episode that he basically the way it kind of happened is he was in the mailroom or he was a copy boy. And then he started working as a journalist and he pitched the editor on, Hey, somebody needs to cover the grateful dead as a business story because they're going to be a, they're this basically a giant business coming out of the Bay area. And so he used that as his uh, route into covering music and has just released a, a book called um, Hollywood Eden and Hollywood Eden is about the class of 1958 uh, at, at a high school in Hollywood that birthed Jan and Dean, Nancy Sinatra, the girl who inspired Gidget, and a whole bunch of peripheral players, including one of the Beach Boys, um, of kind of the rock and roll scene for the next 10 years. And it is absolutely fascinating. It includes stories about the botched kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. Uh, and Dick Dale and the birth of Dick Dale. And, you know, when you talk about surf music and great stories about the Beach Boys. Uh, and so, highly recommend the book but also that episode if you want to get a taste of it we have a great time with joel selvin talking about mostly about jan and dean and uh and kind of how they helped invent the beach boys which people think it's the opposite that the beach boys invented jan and dean but uh jan spent a lot of time creating music with brian wilson which a lot of people don't know and uh it's a real fascinating story can't wait to actually check that episode out. That just sounds like it's amazing treasure trove, a of, trove. of great stories and out there. He, and so we did an episode about, about the Beach Boys and Charles Manson, right? There's always been this rumor that the Beach Boys had a relationship with Charles Manson, which is true, and is mostly centered around Dennis Wilson. So at the end of the episode, we asked him, here's some stuff we've gone over that specifically relates to kind of the period of time that you cover in your new book. You know, do you have anything to add about these? And he tells us a personal story about him and Dennis Wilson at the end of the show. So if that's not enough of a team, it is unbelievable this story about hanging out with dennis wilson at his house uh in the early 80s once again as i was compiling this one of my favorite just chill out songs is sunset grill 
by Don Henley. And I actually love the song that's ahead of it. It's A Month of Sundays, and it rolls into Sunset Grill. Just a fantastic sit outside, watch the sunset, have a, a pop, as, as some people like to call them, or a coldie. One of the other great songs from Don Henley is Boys of Summer. Just a ultimate classic. Absolutely iconic. Absolutely iconic. You know that that wasn't going to be their song, right? You know, you know that wasn't going to be a Don Henley song. Whose song was it going to be? That's a, Mike Campbell wrote that song. That's the Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker song. Really? Yeah. So, so Mike Campbell writes the demo, and he's basically did it as an excuse to play with a Lindrum drum machine. He wanted to try to figure out how to use one. So he shows it to Petty, and they're in the middle of working on Southern accents. And Petty's like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think this is a fit. So Jimmy Iovine. The producer says, hey, why don't you play this for Don Henley? Because we're working on a Don Henley project. And so there weren't lyrics yet. So Henley writes the lyrics. But the song and that that iconic sound of that song is all Mike Campbell. So they change the key and they do a bunch of stuff. But there's a story that floats out there about Tom Petty being absolutely astounded that the song became a hit. And Mike Campbell says that one time they were driving around uh, in a in a car and they, they got in the car, as most a lot of musicians do, right, to hear what it sounds like outside of the studio. So what's it going to sound like in the car? So they take Don't Come Around Here No More to listen to in the car. And as they get in, the radio's on. The radio pops on and, and Boys of Summer is on. And Mike Campbell tells this story about like reaching for the radio like you're a kid before the cuss word, right, with your parents. Reaching for the radio to turn it off because he doesn't want to upset Tom uh, by hearing Boys of Summer. But the lore has gone on to say that, that Petty came around and he's um, he's okay with Boys of Summer and he's, he's glad it was a hit for somebody. But it could have been a Tom Petty song, which is crazy. I hate the fact that we lost Tom Petty way, <sighs> way too soon. Way too he, soon. He just put out an amazing catalog of music. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to ask in job interviews, you know, I, I, after you get through the really important stuff, you you have a fun question at the end. And I'd say, who's who's the greatest American rock band of all time? And this is a great question for just a room full of people when you're breaking the ice, because people don't necessarily think about the nationalities of certain bands. Right. So their brains immediately go to the Beatles, Zepp. Stones, like all these British rock bands, right? So all, all of a sudden you've knocked out this whole tier, right? The Who, yeah, that's a great example. And so the first five you think of are British. So it's like, who, who's, a, who's American? And the answer, in my opinion, is Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I think you could argue Beach Boys. You could be an 80s brat and argue R.E.M. maybe, but I don't think it really holds a candle to, to Petty or the Beach Boys. But I like to talk about Tom Petty with people because it is a quintessentially American thing, whereas so much of the music that we all fell in love with is is a British import. When we were talking the other day, we started having a conversation a little bit about Phil Collins, and I brought up the fact that I think Phil is maybe one of, I think he's actually the greatest composer of our time. He spent a lot of time in Genesis, had an amazing solo career, but to take a rock legend and plug him into a Disney movie like Tarzan, sure. where he actually goes and composes that, that just shows an amazing true breadth of talent. We spent a lot of time on the show talking about Phil Collins. We both love him. We love to talk about him. We have fans of the show that love to talk about him. And so we've spent an inordinate amount of time on him. Um, the great thing about Phil Collins is he's a great composer and a terrible human. So it's a perfect combination of what you want to talk about on a podcast, right? Uh, the scandalous and the really good tunes. But, you know, we did an episode on this idea that in the air tonight, is about this revenge f fantasy about somebody drowning, uh, which is a really interesting story. I won't spoil, but the other thing about Phil Collins is that we forget, and I talk about this all the time on the show and off the show, 
how big Phil Collins and Genesis were at the beginning of the 80s. And there's a, not to plug another podcast, but after you listen to all 43 episodes of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories and everything from 278, make sure you check out this podcast from a couple years ago that called Hip, It's I think it's still around, called Hip Parade. And it's a guy from, I believe he's employed by Billboard magazine, but he talks about rock and roll from the chart perspective. So it's all about what happened on the on the recording charts. And he does a whole episode on on Genesis and the massive overtaking of of the pop charts that they did in the 80s. There was a period of time where Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, Mike, more popularly known, you know, with Mike and the Mechanics and Genesis all had songs in the top, like uh, at least the top 30 at the same time, which is just uh, like doesn't hasn't really happened since that you would have that many side projects and that many of uh, artists that were involved in one musical project at some point, all kind of part of the pop infrastructure of commercial radio. So really, really interesting stuff. But yeah, you, you can't underestimate the um, the influence of Phil Collins. He's, he's an absolute master. Last thing I want to touch on, and we may end up having to do a whole nother episode on this <laughs> since this is 278 to lighthouse road and yeah. we talk a lot about hilton head hootie and the blowfish oh, is buddy. out of the university of south carolina and uh, there's a gentleman down there that actually owns a restaurant on the island who worked at the holiday inn and hired them to come in and they were the i believe the house band during the summers to play on hilton head island out back of the holiday inn so if you were fortunate enough back in the I guess late seventies, early eighties, uh, to catch Hootie and the Blowfish, you caught one of the biggest up and coming bands at the time. Hootie and the Blowfish are near and dear to my heart, partly because of my age. Uh, but I, I came into them at a time where they, I, I would say if I made a short list of bands that changed my life, they would be in the top three or five. They haven't stayed as a, as one of my favorite bands of all time, but they definitely were there at the right time. Cracked rear view was just everywhere. You couldn't get away from it. I remember seeing the videos for the first time. I remember, you know, there was this like goth kid in my high school or, or middle school that I don't know why he had a copy of that record and he wasn't fond of it. And so I like had to trade him something to get him to give it to me out of his backpack. And I think I still have that copy, which was just no liner notes, nothing. It's just the disc in, 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 in a jewel case. And it, w- it was just, it really blew my mind. And I, again, we haven't done an episode on Hootie and the Blowfish on Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories for a couple of reasons, but one of them is that uh, John Caramonica at the New York Times, he has a show called Popcast that you can download. Um, and he, several years ago, did a series on, he loves Hootie, and he did a series on on the outsized influence and history of Hootie and the Blowfish and deep dives deeper than I'd ever be able to go. Has people on the show that love Hootie, has people on the show, he does an, ep- an episode where he splits it between a proponents of Hootie and the Blowfish and detractors of Hootie and the Blowfish, and they both get their time to to talk about Hootie but I I did me I've been involved because I came from the radio and concert industry I've been involved in several Hootie and the Blowfish concerts and I do have a Darius Rucker story where I was backstage at a benefit with the golfer uh John Daly and oh, yeah yeah <laughs> and, <laughs> that's that's a whole podcast in itself yes it is and he's friends with Edwin McCain and Darius Rucker those are like his two buddies that he gets to do benefits for him and so they were both on this bill and I just remember a couple things one I was told furiously beforehand you if you run into him you do not call him Hootie he does he is not Hootie he is Darius and secondly I've just always been told he was a little aloof so I backstage I, I couldn't couldn't keep myself because I was such a big fan and I mean they really did have this huge influence on me that I had to say something to him 
And so I did. I stopped him. And I'm just a young kid at this point. I'm probably in my early 20s. And I stop him in the hall and I try to talk to him right before he's getting called on stage. And uh, and he just kind of looked at me like, why are you talking to me, dude? Didn't didn't people tell you not to talk to me? And he just kind of nodded at me and then went on stage. But I I am okay with that because, uh, you know, it's Darius Rucker. And, uh, and then I went on to work in country radio, having no idea that one day I'd be you know, introducing and talking about and promoting Darius Rucker as a solo country artist who's had a pretty good turn, even though we've all been uh, forced to suffer through his version of Wagon Wheel um, again. <laughs> but but I, I don't hold it against him. I'm still a big fan. I've got a great John Daly story. When the uh, PGA was coming to Louisville, we went out. He, I think, was in a few days before the, the tournament, and he was out on the, the driving range, and we're out there trying to do interviews with folks and shooting you know, the different golfers just out there yeah. driving. And he's such a character. He's out there. He's, I think he had like a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And he's yes. sucking on a Pepsi can. Uh-huh. And he's like, hey, y'all, watch this. <laughs> that classic line. And he sets a Pepsi can down and he puts a golf ball on top of it. And he hits this ball so flipping far. It, easy over 300 yards. I was like, this is this. That's just amazing yeah. to be able to whack a golf ball off a Pepsi can yeah. we, 300 yards. We were all a little nervous when we would throw these benefits. We were partners in throwing these benefits that he was doing. And because uh, you never know. I mean, he's a little bit of a, of a, I mean, he is a, hey, guys, watch this kind of guy. And I do remember having to literally MC, like bring him on stage at one of these shows. And I, I just was like, okay watching very carefully to and crossing my fingers that he was not going to trip on anything. He was, <laughs> he was, you know what I mean? Yes. Like it was a risk yeah. and he was making his way on stage and I'm like, John Daly. And I turn around and I just watch him coming towards me. And I'm like, Oh man, if he just, if he gets off course at all, we are in a world of trouble. But he, you know, as he typically did, he pulled it out and everything was fine. We raised a lot of money. Well, we could definitely do this all day and we may actually have to get back together and, and talk some more music. Brian, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you so your much, man. So much fun. stories and, uh, and for your love and passion for Hilton Head Island. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for doing this. I love that you're doing a podcast about one of the greatest places on earth. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is the podcast hosted by Brian and Murdoch. You can find it on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. If you like music, you will love the stories they tell. We will see you next time as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road.